6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Job, chapters 38 through 40. We are in the book of Job. We are in session six. We're going to do this thing. We're going to try to do Job in eight sessions, which in some respects can be a little superficial in some places. At the same time, we think there's a value in, in, in moving right along. So, so um, okay, we're in, in session six. We're in chapters 38. Uh, well, theoretically to the end of the book, but we'll probably take a couple of chapters tonight, about two chapters. And so we've, we've uh, managed our way through the uh, comforters, <laughs> these advisors, what I call the ash heap trio. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and we also uh, spent uh, the previous six chapters on Elihu, this interesting spirit-filled young man that sort of sets the stage for the climax of the book, which we're now into. The chapters 38 and following is, of course, the climax of the book. And God himself now steps in to these discussions. We can count probably about 77 questions that um, God, instead of answering Job's questions, God raises questions, confronts Job with questions, about 77 of them. You know, it's interesting that the uh, pursuit of scientific research is the legitimate pursuit of man. It was ordained, in effect, in the Garden of Eden, in chapter 1, verse 28, where, man was told, where God told man to take dominion of the earth and subdue it. And so this is the mandate that undergirds every legitimate enterprise, not the least of which is scientific research. And the tragedy, of course, is that man has insisted on institutionalizing his own um, uh, rationalizations, independent of acknowledging the majesty of God is evident in the creation. It's going to be interesting how God will focus these questions on the creation. And that's a, a major signal to us, that the creation is important. You know, some people figure, well, some people are into this creation-evolution debate, and that's great. Some people are not. Actually, that undergirds the whole uh, issue of who God is and what he's done. He, he takes that very, very seriously, his handiwork. See, science claims to be the pursuit of truth, but that's, a, that's just propaganda. Science is the pursuit of mechanistic rationalizations independent of God. And uh, that's, a, that's, that's tragic. You know, the, the great founding fathers of science, uh, Newton, Boyle, Pascal, and all of those, they pursued their pursuit of science because they, were, they saw it as a path to demonstrate the glory of God. They were God-fearing men. And, uh, but, of course, most fields of study have been taken over by humanists. And Christians, by their indifference, have yielded to this satanic takeover of science. So science, which should have been the, the uh, great testimony to the majesty of God, has really become a device for ignoring and rejecting and preying upon the uninformed. And that's the tragedy today. 
But we're going to see as God now steps into this complex philosophical dialogue that's been going on now for, you know, 37 chapters. It's interesting, God, how he deals with this. What's his message? What's God's response to Job's request for a hearing, for a trial? Well, God's, <laughs> he's going to step in. Job chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, and by the way, this is the first time that we encounter in this book since the prologue, the name of Jehovah or Yahweh or however you want to say the unpronounceable name of God. His special name is used here. Now Job, the sufferer, his plea, which has been repetitious for, for a hearing, is now being answered by God himself. But of course, instead of answering the questions, God's going to ask, ask some questions. Now it's interesting, this world winter storm is exactly what Elihu had predicted back there in chapter 37. We often see a storm, uh, clouds and thunders and lightning and so forth, um, when God appears. He did so at Sinai and Exodus 19 and a lot of other places. Clouds are always associated with it because they're protecting the audience from being destroyed by His majesty. So on the one hand, they declare His presence. On the other hand, they, they act as a protective mask so that we don't get destroyed by His holiness. This idea of a whirlwind, by the way, should, as we think of the Bible, it occurs all the time. Remember Jesus, when he talked to Nicodemus, he said God is a spirit. And he's like the wind, where you can tell where he's been, but you can't see it kind of thing, in, in, John, in John chapter 3. Also the wind, uh, like a rushing wind at Pentecost, chapter 2. Just to name a couple, you can go all through the scripture and you'll discover that very often the Holy Spirit moves in, 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 in the form of a wind. And, uh, so anyway... God's opening remarks, verse 2, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? <laughs> that describes a lot of people we've probably heard. But he's, uh, he's lumping up the whole gang here. Now some commentators, you'll find, assume from verse 2 that God is hereby rebuking Elihu. And they misunderstand the whole text, in my opinion. Some commentators demean Elihu. We've taken a different view altogether. We, we side with those commentators that see Elihu as a very, very key bridge from these three guys that are the losers, if you will, and uh, God himself stepping in. And I hold to that view because I think these words don't apply to Elihu. They apply to Job. Job himself, at the end of the book, will apply those words to himself. God is addressing this discourse, not to Elihu, to Job. And he says, Gird up now, thou loins like a man, for I will demand of thee and thou answer thou. I mean, that's... God is challenging Job here um, by his own ignorant words that he's been darkening the light that should have come to him. And we do that a lot too, by the way. See, Job's error here is that he's talking when he should have been listening. And we all do that. You know, it's as if we're a half duplex. If you're an engineer, you know what I mean? Where you, that's like a channel that you have to turn around. One person can talk and then you turn over to the other. See, life is like that. You know, you, you, you generally don't have your receiver on if you're transmitting. <laughs> you see, and that's, that's sort of what's going on here. But also... Um, God says, gird up thy loins. That's a, we don't use that in our vocabulary, but see, in those days, when somebody was about to undertake something very strenuous, like running, fighting, or, or just working hard, he would take his flowing robes and stuff them in a sash, girding up his loins. In other words, that, that phrase implies, get ready for something strenuous, for to be confronted. It's like getting ready for a fight, or, or be, be alert, is what he's saying. And a struggle is coming. 
And well, you know, Job has been screaming for a trial before God for several, all through his, these discourses. Well, now, uh, he, God shows up, but God asks him the questions. And the next few questions you could sort of subtitle, where were you? And uh, verse 4, where, where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. You know, it's interesting how many people make their careers as cosmologists talking about how the question of origins, and they haven't been there, obviously. In fact, science is the art of observation and experimentation and repetition. Repeating an experiment is essential, which means that the study of origins is not a science. It's perfectly reasonable to take what we think we know and make conjectures. The trouble is those conjectures get passed on as if they were truth. They're just conjectures. So God's going to ask Job a series of questions in about three different areas. The first area will be his creation. It's interesting how God um, puts his creation right up front as an expression of his majesty and the fact that he is God. And that's the main message in Job. We'll try to tie it all together when we get to the uh, uh, you know the end of the of the study here and put it all in perspective. But one of the things we'll discover, if the book of Job is 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 why do the innocent suffer, God never answers it. God never deals with his suffering in here. God's going to talk on for four chapters. Uh, he answers a lot. That isn't the real issue. It seems to be the issue. No, it's just the real issue is the existence of God and who he is and who is man in respect to him. And that's what's really going to emerge here. So God will talk about his creation. And the second area is his providential care. He'll talk about the balance of nature. Who feeds the animals? As we, the ecologists like to always pronounce cosmic doom if we have a half a percent more ozone or something. Hey, turn that coin over. If the ozone layer is that sensitive, who balanced it in the first place? See, every one of those delicate issues is an argument for design. It's an argument against randomness. And it turns out there's dozens, well, we get to that a little bit later, dozens of ratios. If we take everything we think we know about our physical universe and try to model it, make a mathematical model of what we think we know, we discover some very strange things. We discover that almost every ratio is in delicate balance. Some of these ratios, if you change one part in 10,000, life is impossible. Everything is incredibly delicately balanced. And this is so obvious that scientists have even given this aspect a name. They call it the anthropic principle. Because one of the early scientists pointed out, it's, it's as if the universe was designed for man. To which we say, no kidding, Dick Tracy. <laughs> But see, the evidence of design is everywhere. and God hold, It's so evident that God holds everyone accountable for it. That's what Romans chapter 1 is all about. God, the creation itself can hold us accountable. And uh, that's what Paul, he's going to be doing here. Anyway, God talks about his creation, his providential care. And then he's going to talk about his restraint of the evil forces in, in, in the world. In fact, he'll even put Job in that spot. He says, you want to play God? What would you, how would you control the proud and so forth? And so he puts you really up on the spot through here. But it really good. anyway, the, one of the first things that really hits you between the eyes as you start studying Job is how prominent the uh, and fundamental is the creation in Christian apologetics. It's the foundation. And uh, it's really essential that we not be confused on that. It's tragic that most churches, many Christians, try to say, well, evolution was God's way of creation. No, that's that's not what the Scripture says. And God deals with that here. He deals with it in one chapter in Genesis and four chapters here in Job. He hammers that God did everything specifically the way he wanted it. He designed the duck-billed platypus to prove that he had a sense of humor. And, and, and these things produce after their own kind. 
And so uh, that, that's clearly what God instructs, what he shows us. And to try to deny that, to try to uh, accept these other conjectures and fanciful theories uh, is, is, is actually humorous, by the way. I love to get, you know, people that love to talk about kangaroos. You know, they have a pouch. That's called a marsupial if you have a pouch. Seahorses have, are marsupials. They have a pouch. But the pouch is on the male. Now, have an evolution explain how that happened. Okay. But anyway, uh, we'll move on. Thirty-five times in Genesis and all through these four chapters in Job, God is emphasized that he created every specific thing himself the way he wanted it, and they produce after their own kind. They are, we know today, digitally defined. Digitally, what do I mean by digitally defined? If you have a clock with hands, that's an analog display. The hand moves twice as far, it's twice as long. In other words, it's an analog of time going by. If you have a digital watch, which says that it's, you know, uh, uh, 745 right now, that's alphanumeric. Those are digits, those are symbols. You follow me? So a digital, a digital display operates in discrete steps. So uh, digital things don't evolve. They're designed. You have n- nowhere to have your digital... Uh, I ran into a guy who had a neat little thing. I'm going to have to make one of these for myself. He had a little string of beads. And he had on the beads, in different colors, he had uh, in Morse code, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created on the earth, in Morse code. And he had an interesting. What's the chances of that happening by accident? It can't evolve. It couldn't happen in nature. Someone had to, you know, insert that code, if you will, in that form to give it that representation. Digital thing. See, and what we've discovered with the DNA, the species are digitally designed. That's why there's not interspecies. You know, they're, they're, within a species, there's adaptation, sure, but species are species. You know, ostriches don't become elephants. You know, they're, they're digitally defined. Anyway. We'll get into the ostriches and all of it in here in a minute. Uh, okay, so God's first question is, hey, guy, were you there? See, the essence of science is observation. No one was there to observe. Observation. Science involves observations, measurement, experimentation, and repeating the experiment. If you can't repeat the experiment, it's not science. It's a happenstance. So we're really left in the field of cosmology with conjectures. Some of them are very intelligent conjectures, given what they think they know. Fine, but they're conjectures. And we don't treat them as conjectures. And uh, one of the basic presumptions in science is uniformitarianism, that processes are in place that were always there and always will be. It's a, there's uniformity in processes. And yet, when we look through, take a look through a pair of binoculars and look at the moon. You see a lot of pockmarks? It's been beat up. In fact, as we send space shuttles around to other planets and stuff, we find that it's characteristic of our solar system to have these planets pockmarked. They've been clobbered. The solar system has been in a rough neighborhood. Uniformitarian is there. There's been catastrophes, interruptions, nonlinearities. That's never in the theories, you see. And so uh, uh, buffeting nonlinearities, that that puts these uniformitarian presumptions in great doubt, frankly. Every naturalistic or humanistic process contradicts the basic laws of science anyway. The laws of causality the laws of conservation, and the laws of entropy. Well-established, well-understood, and yet these theories of origins fly in the face of all of those laws, by the way. But uh, so there's very little humility among cosmologists. I love the way that John Leffler summarizes cosmo- the, the Big Bang. First there was nothing, and then it exploded. Okay? There you have it, okay? 
You know, the ancient uh, tribes were, worshipped all these strange kinds of gods, gods of wood, stone, whatever, right? We've created the most insulting god of all. All those false gods, of course, insult the living God. But we've invented a God that's more insulting than any of those. See, the ancients ascribed the creation of the, to these various pantheistic gods of various kinds. We've found an even more insulting way to deal with it, to say that no God was necessary. Our God is nothingness, emptiness. It all just happened by itself. Really? Yeah. Anyway, no one's ever solved the problem of origins because they can't dis- solve the problem of the origin of information. You can't explain the origin of life because they can't explain the origin of information. And uh, so if you want to know how the world began, there's only one way you can, that's to ask the designer who did it. And that's what we're getting into. Okay, verse 5. God continues, who hath, laid, who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? And who hath stretched the line upon it? That's kind of an interesting model, even rhetorically. That implies that he had help. So the Trinity is even hinted here, but we'll move on. Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened, and who laid the cornerstone thereof? It's interesting that even today, the frontiers of science are dealing with the fabric of space. The fact that empty space has zero-point energies that are enormous, and and, and we're just we, we, the nature of matter as a as a bending of space-time. These are concepts that are way out there, obviously, and. Uh, uh, the, the nature of space-time itself, that space and time are a continuum. And these are, these are uh, uh, we're, we're still trying to figure out how God hung the earth upon nothing, the way he says in Isaiah and here in Job. Anyway, verse 7. He said, anyway, who laid the cornerstone there? Verse 7. When the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy. And most uh, most commentators in the in the Hebrew think the morning stars and the sons of God are both uh, parallelisms for angels. Uh, for yeah, for angels, and the sons of God. It's a very key term. It's used in the in the Old Testament consistently of direct creations of God called angels. These are not the lines of Seth that some people try to contrive. The Bene Elohim is a is is a, are angels. They're used in a, in three places in Job and lots of other places, even in the New Testament. In effect. In John chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. He came unto his own, his own received him not, but as to many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, meaning direct creations of God, a new creation. He uses the same equivalent phrase in Luke 20, verse 36. So, But anyway, now God shifts from the creation in broad terms to one of its largest components, the sea, the oceans. And one of the most prominent features, about three-fourths of the planet Earth's surface is are the seas. So verse 8 says, Or who shut up the sea with doors when it break forth, as if it had issued out of a womb? What on earth is he talking about? Anyone know? Flood of Noah. The water that covered the earth did not all come from the rain. But the fountains of the deep were opened up. That water came out and later gets put away. So he even said, Who shut up the sea with doors when it break forth, as if it had issued out of a womb? When I made the cloud, the garment thereof, and the thick darkness a swaddling band for it, and break up for it my decreed place, and set bars and doors, and said, Hitherto shalt thou come, but no further, and here shall thy proud waves be stayed. It's interesting how the oceans now are stable. The isostatic boundaries are such that a deluge like that can never happen again. But it's interesting, God describes this all here. And who controls the tides within bounds? They're within very definitive mathematical bounds. See, the greatest geophysical uh, upheaval ever 
was the flood of Noah. And there's evidence of it all over the earth. Geological strata, fossil beds, all over the world are irrefutable witnesses of the, of the universal flood at one time. Uh, it's interesting, there's some, some Christian apologists say that uh, the flood of Noah was only a local flood, it wasn't a universal flood. If they say, make that statement, then they're calling God a liar. Because God promised Noah that he'd never do that again. And if that was a regional flood, there's been lots of regional floods since. And what God was saying, I'll never do that again, what, a universal flood? And obviously God not only set the flood, but it's by his providential care that the uh, eight people were saved on the, on the ark and, and that the earth had, was replenished. How? By God's intervention. It's interesting how you find a description of all this, not just in Genesis 6, 7, and 8, not just here in Job, but also in Psalm 104. You might put that in your notes. In Psalm 104, Thou coverest it with the deep as with a garment. The flood stood above the mountains. At thy rebuke they fled. In the voice of thy thunder they hasted away. They go up by the mountains. They go down by the valleys into the place where thou hast found it for them. Thou hast set a bound that they may not pass over. They may not turn again to cover the earth. It goes on. Psalm 104. You might put that in your notes for this. It's a good comment on this. And uh, Okay, but now God shifts to day and night. The whole sidereal situation here. He's going to, beginning with this verse and continuing with four chapters, God is now going to deal with the present processes that we all experience and, and, and that do constitute a, 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 it's a valid mandate. Uh, it's a proper domain of science and uh, in, in concert with his commission to man to subdue the earth. And we're going to talk about the rotation of the earth in verses 12 through 15, the springs and pathways of the sea in verse 16, the breadth of the earth, how big is it in verse 18. That's one of the only questions we today can answer. Most of these questions Job couldn't answer, we can't answer today. That's one that he couldn't answer and we can today, thanks to satellite measurements and so forth. We do know how big the earth is. The travel of light in verse 19, the dividing of light in verse 24, and the source of rain and ice and all that in verse 28 to 30, and the universal nature of the physical laws, which itself is an interesting insight, and electrical transmission of communications in verse 35. These discoveries, many of these discoveries were made by God-fearing creationists of the past, um, guys like Newton, uh, Mari, I'll talk about Mari in a minute, Faraday, and Morse, and so forth. Verse 12, hast thou, God, hast thou commanded the morning since thy days, or caused the day spring to know his place? The day, do you realize the sun gets up every morning in a different place? The sunrise is a different point in the horizon every day by the seasons. Who set that? Well, the procession of the earth. Yeah, but who organized all that? If it wasn't for the procession of the earth, if the earth turned a little faster, a little slower, life would be impossible. If the earth was a little bit close to the sun, it would be too hot. A little further away, too cold. It's at that place that the balance is perfect to support life. You can go through over a hundred ratios, which if they were changed a little bit, life's impossible. If the gravity on the earth was a little stronger, if the gravity on the earth was a little less, life's impossible. Almost every parameter that you start to model, you discover if you change it and follow through with the signals that changes, life doesn't work. It's an incredibly complex, intricate balance. And uh, that's what, in effect, God is dealing with here. Verse 13, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth, that the wicked might be shaken out of it. It is turned as clay to the seal, and they stand as a garment, and from the wicked their light is withholden, and the high arm shall be broken. Hast thou entered into the springs of the sea? Hast thou walked in search of its depth? (laughs) 
Let me back up here a little bit here. The earlier things you talk about, uh, the light and darkness also is where it also gets associated with wickedness and so forth, because the wicked operate where the light isn't shining. But uh, this issue of uh, when he starts talking about this, uh, the uh, secrets of the deep is very interesting, because the secrets of the deep are still largely hidden. Oceanography is really in its beginnings. But it's interesting, the father of oceanography is an interesting story. Matthew Fontaine Mare was a young man and read in the Psalms and in Isaiah and in Job that there were pathways in the sea. There's pathways in the sea? That's a weird idea. So he joined the Navy, made that his calling, and he, he started, he got in a position where he got into the hydrographic offices and had them start collecting temperatures, all the ships at sea all the time, keeping logs, bring that in and start to analyze it. And he was the one that began to map that there are, you know, currents or pathways in the sea. And he did his whole career, the whole field of oceanography is built on his commitment from reading the scripture. He talks about that in his autobiography and so forth. And, uh, Anyway, verse 17, God continues, Have the gates of death been opened unto thee? What do we know about death? Not much. Got a lot of weird people writing stuff about it. Death is a mystery. It's a boundary. Have the gates of death been opened unto thee? Hast thou seen the doors of the shadow of death? Hardly. Death is still a mystery. Yes, I know there are books written about near-death experiences and all that, and take those with a grain of salt. Be careful. But, uh, see, science really hasn't made a dent here. Because there's very few people that came back from the death. And those that have, they don't listen to. (laughs) Jesus came back from the grave. He has the floor. So listen to what he has to say about it. You know, go on. But anyway, verse 18. God continues, Hast thou perceived the breadth of the earth? Hey, Job, do you know how big the earth is? Oh, no. Now we can be kind of smug. We have satellites and we know that the, you know, it's, uh, you know, a, a sphere with 4,000 miles in radius and more or less, except it's a blade spheroid and we can measure it. And okay, great, because we have satellites. So that's one question probably of the, of the 77. There's one that we could probably muster a, a, a viable answer to. The rest we can't really, even today. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Job. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time. As we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music